This is Dan Turchin, host of AI and the Future of Work and CEO of Insight Finder, the leading AI platform for IT operations. This is a special episode of the podcast featuring a recent fireside chat with Helen Gu, our CTO and founder. If you're interested in the AI behind AI ops, including how the algorithms work and what distinguishes good from bad AI, well, keep listening. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where it is you're listening. I'm Dan Turchin, Insight Finder CEO, and it's my pleasure to moderate today's discussion with one of the foremost AI researchers, who also happens to be our CTO and my friend. But before we get started with the discussion with Helen, I thought I would share a bit of background, starting with a somewhat philosophical question. Why are we here? Well, in the case of AI for, op for IT operations, we're here because our tidy little world got very complex over the last, say, five plus years. Infrastructure is much more complex. There are many more data sources to be monitored. They often send conflicting messages leading to a high volume of false positive alerts. New patterns are being introduced every day into our infrastructure, things like microservices and serverless architectures. And you know what happened is even while all of the infrastructure around us got really, really complex, our ability as humans has not changed. So without literally adding you know, 10x or 1,000x the resources to manage and monitor these infrastructures, we're faced with one of two decisions we can either suffer greater downtime and always play catch up with the business and often miss SLAs and pay penalties, or we can look for a smarter way to manage infrastructure as it scales. And today what we're gonna talk about is the latter of the two, the way to apply machine intelligence to essentially automate away a problem that was created in the first place by machines. We're gonna talk a bit about the value of closed loop change management, which has been kind of an elusive goal for many of us in this space for, oh, say at least 15 years. Now, Helen and her teams have published over 80 academic papers and they're responsible for innovative technologies used by leaders at Google, IBM, Dell, Credit Suisse and others. Helen was recently uh, she's too modest to talk about it, but was recently given the prestigious 10-year award from the Symposium on Cloud Computing for a paper that uh, she and her co-authors uh, published back in 2011 about elastic resource scaling. Helen's a professor at NC State, and she lectures frequently on topics related to anomaly detection and distributed systems. Before we hand over to Helen, let's open the time capsule just a bit. Roll back the clock about a decade. I remember in 2010 discussing this principle of what it means to achieve closed loop change management and auto remediation with the CIO of a large auto manufacturing company. And this was in Detroit. And we were talking about some of these same principles. You know, what does it mean to wrap a layer of intelligence 
horizontally across all of the key components in the life cycle. And I remember this like it was yesterday. Her name was Janice and she looked at me in the eye and she confidently committed that she was gonna automate IT operations across the life cycle by the end of the year. Bless her soul, we need starry-eyed visionaries like that. The fact is, Janice's vision hasn't changed. Thankfully, our ability to deliver on the promise of self-healing infrastructure has. It turns out that with the right AI, systems can actually self-heal using pattern recognition to feed insights from anomaly detection through the rest of the life cycle, through incident management, problem management, changing configuration management. It can happen today because we have the right AI. That vision was powerful in 2010. It's just as powerful today. It was just about a decade ahead of its time. The right AI refers to not just the algorithms, but it's also the process of ingesting and storing and interpreting all that data. And when I think back to kind of Janice's vision from a decade ago, it's finally something that's commercially available. One of the things we're gonna to discuss today is what's the right set of questions to even ask to know where to start if you're early in your journey. Now, Insight Finder, we're, we're proud to say, is built on innovations, many of which came from Helen's labs that span hundreds of person years and multiple decades. We're gonna talk a little bit about how that, quote, right approach to AI is being deployed at scale for some of the world's most complex banks, telcos, and consumer brands. Without further ado, let's welcome today's guest, Helen. Good to have you here. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Let's start with a little bit about your background and how you got into this field. Thanks, Dan. Uh, so, uh, hi, everyone. So, thanks for joining today's session. It's really, um, I feel humbled to have this opportunity to share my personal story. So, it's all actually, the journey started when, when I was a PhD student at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And my advisor, uh, Clara Neshtat, is a very famous researcher in the field of quantitative service and uh, multimedia. So quantitative service is actually an academic term for service level agreement or service level objective in industry. Um, you know, QS has been actually a research topic for a long time before I entered the academia world. And multimedia is actually a very interesting application we uh, we focus on back then because any short term kind of like glitches will cause like big you know user dissatisfaction. So uh, quality service is is a very important aspect of you know uh, this kind of application. And my um, vision at that time, my PhD research is about actually provide a kind of distributed system. Back then, I call it the service overlay network. Uh, so that, that was 2001. So it's almost like two, uh, 20 years ago. Uh, there's no concept of cloud. There's no concept of you know, virtualization. Uh, back then, there's only a concept called web service, right? And the vision I had for my PhD is that I will develop a distributed system that you know, user can have, you know, arbitrary content, they can actually stream into this um, service overlay network, and you can compose the web services as demand. So, for example, the, the common application scenario I use is that you have a bunch of photos, 
and you can stream these photos into this service overlay network. And this overlay network will actually do some like image editing, automatic image editing, and then basically automatic categorization based on the content and, and send a nice organized, automatically generated, beautified photo album to you. So that, that was my vision like 20 years ago. Today is not no longer kind of like imagination, it's reality, right? So the service called Instagram and also Google Brain service for the photo, Google photo service. And, and also the infrastructure I was uh, kind of imagining is basically called today. So, so the background is that, you know, believe it or not, my first research paper is actually using neural network to predict, you know, the bandwidth, available bandwidth on the mobile device and also predict the user preference, right? And, and you know, based on the weather location and your device, you can, you know, using neural network to predict, you know, what kind of like content, multimedia content you want to see on your device. Um, so, so back then, of course, neural network is not, is, is not as hot as today, right? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's actually a cool topic. It's just because people don't believe neural network can produce the accurate enough predictions. And um, and uh, now today, seeing a lot of things changed, right? So I think our vision did not change, but you know, uh, the a lot of environment. And today we have much more powerful machines. We have tons of data. And also the other things that you know inspired me to do research in this area is that you know back then um, my um, my passion is about building reliable distributed systems. And I remember uh, the first uh, like keynote I heard in distributed system conference um, is delivered by Dr. Afra Spector. And he was the research head back then for IBM TJ Watson research. Um, and he delivered a talk called the conundrum of distributed systems. So the conundrum is basically we see, you know, you know, people back then, right? The people think right they can just have one server and they run the one uh, uh, web service and you know then that's it they can support you know uh, all their customers and however since evolved right now we all know like one server is not going to be used uh, like sufficient you need the distributed systems so as we put more functionality and scalability requirements to distributed system and more features, right? And the distributed system becomes more and more complex. That that's just unavoidable kind of like you know trend. And as this complexity add on, and today we have like you know I would say hundreds of magnitude higher complexity than like 20 years ago, right? So we have virtualization, we have microservices, we have all kinds of like new features like AI, you know, stream. And all those things actually add up the complexity in the in the stack, right? So, you know, today you can see that there, we have like a lot of people talk about this full stack analysis. It's just because the stack becomes so complex. It's no longer just like, you know, open system and application. There's actually all kinds of like middle layers right in between. Um, so so this is all basically inspires me to look into how to, you know, how to tackle this you know complexity and um machine learning is actually um has been actually you know i just you know happened to um to get actually interested in that technology 
But then later on, as we started more, then we see, okay, the machine data is actually particularly, you know, amenable for this machine, uh, like new kind of machine learning algorithms, because we're dealing with tons of data. So we, we don't have problem, we don't have data. We have lots of data. That's not our problem. Uh, but the problem is that how do you grab insights from tons of data? So that's what kind of like eventually the, the whole research questions I have been um, asking myself all this time is how do we actually find the right insight out of this like, you know, uh, uh, kind of like, you know, data, uh, people call the data lake, right? I would say data ocean, right? <laughs> so, um, so that that's that has been like my research uh, for the past uh, like twenty years. At what point did you realize that the work you were doing in academia might have broader commercial applications? Yeah, that that's also a very interesting uh, story, and I I never think. Uh, thought about the starting a company. And uh, so I've been in research lab. I worked at IBM Research uh, before I joined the uh, NC State. So I have been always in academia and has always been uh, as a researcher and scientist. Um, so, um, so we publish, uh, you know, we have been extensively published papers in this area. So I remember our first uh, kind of uh, machine learning driven anomaly prediction paper was published back in 2006. Uh, so it was pretty early um, publication of using machine learning to do anomaly detection. Um, and um, so back then, I think people uh, kind of like, even in academia world, people feel like, okay, th this kind of technology is, you know, high value, but they don't feel like there's a big uh, potential behind it because People, a, they feel is that it's hard to achieve high accuracy, and uh, and second, people feel like you know even you have the prediction, and um, let's say you know you have like 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour lead time, and a lot of problems are still handled manually, and they feel like okay you know they, they you know this kind of like lead time is not very beneficial for them. And the third is that, you know, there's not a lot of outages, maybe, you know, 20 years ago, like, you know, we if we just deal with one server and probably one person can actually handle that, right? So you you can have you can have a machine, you can have a, a person to babysit a, a machine. Um so so it was not actually uh catching a lot of kind of attention, but we keep on we because we <laughs> Uh, we feel is that you know the data will become you know more and more and the system becomes more and more complex and the, i think that around that time also cloud computing starts to take off uh so we 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 believe that's that's the that's the inevitable uh challenge we have to actually tackle so we we keep on working on that and the and also we uh, as many kind of like um uh, researchers in this field, right? So even today in commercial world, and people always start with supervised machine learning. And uh, we, we also start with supervised machine learning. We use the decision trees, Gaussian mixed model, and the, you know, uh, uh, Bayesian networks, all those, you know, well-known technology we tried and support vector machine. And uh, so so we, we can achieve some good results uh, using supervised machine learning. Um, but then um, 
so later on, we once we you know we, we keep on collaborating with industry people. For example, my research has been sponsored by Google, by IBM, also by Credit Suisse. Um, so I worked with them together on some of the the, the practical problems they, they they encounter, and we quickly realized okay, this supervised machine learning is really hard to apply in real world. Uh, because machine data are highly fluctuating and it's really hard to, um, you know, correctly label data. Now mentioning um, it's, you know, very labor intensive to get those labor uh, data labels, right? So, you know, you, you later need the person to actually tell the, uh, you know, tell the machine, oh, this is good data, this is bad data. So, it's 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 literally impractical. So we switch the gear and start to actually focus on unsupervised machine learning around 2010. Um, and then we had our first set of results, right? So we from 2010 to 2011 until 2012, I think within a, around like two years period, we tried a lot of unsupervised machine learning algorithms, right? Like clustering, PCA, nearest neighbor. Um, so and, and, and we get very bad results, right? So we keep getting bad results because, um, you know, it's a lot more challenging to use unsupervised machine learning uh, to do this anomaly detection for system, uh, for distributed systems. Um, the reason is that, you know, the distributed systems are highly dynamic, very fluctuating. There's a lot of dependencies um, uh, in distributed systems. And so many machine learning models cannot capture those dependencies, cannot capture those, you know, uh, cannot, you know, capture good patterns out of fluctuating data. So we, we, we tried a lot of things and then we uh, bumped into, so basically my PhD student, uh, Daniel Dean, he actually, uh, so, so he's, uh, he's a man, um, kind of like a student who, who mainly works on this area with me. And he, he bumped into a, 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 a research tech, a technique coming from kind of video tracking system. So uh, the, the, the technique is called self-organizing uh, self map. Uh, so it's, it's kind of a special neural network technology. It's, it's still a neural network technology, but it's, it's a little bit different from traditional multi-layer neural network technology. Um, and it's typically used for um, tracking the paths of uh, kind of automatic driving cars. For example, you can track the paths and you can actually predict where the, the car will go. So, um, and, and that's the original, actually the usage of that technique. And we were thinking, okay, can we use that for system anomaly detection? And we tried for about like five months on this technique and then we, we failed. It, it was very frustrating experience. And the reason is because the uh, we thought we can track the, the evolving paths of distributed systems just like we track a car. And that is not the case because uh, the system is, is, is highly kind of like unpredictable in the sense that there's a lot of variations, there's a lot of context and that is hard to actually quantify using this kind of uh, simple neural network technology. So then we switch gear, we think, okay, can we use it in a different way to, to, to actually do that? And uh, then, you know, luckily we actually come up with a way to actually adapt this kind of technology for anomaly detection. And then we publish a paper 
uh, back in 2012. And then um, um, our uh, basically news reporters actually broadcast the, the paper. Basically, they, they, they think this is a very interesting technology, right, with the cloud, with the um, reliability, with the AI. And so uh, this news article is read by many um, uh, kind of leaders from industry. Um, and I got calls from a lot of companies and saying like, can we use it in real world? Because at that time, I think that's when the cloud took off. And you, if you guys remember back in 2011, AWS has a lot of outages. And uh, one of the famous outages is that they had is that they have the, uh, actually two in 2011. Uh, one is that they have a very broad service outage that caused Netflix uh, went down on Christmas Eve. So that's caused a lot of like the news headlines. Uh, the other big outage is that they had like they lost the whole East the US East region instances. Um, so so that's you know when uh, back then then a lot of cloud service providers realized this is a big issue for them. Uh, so one of the companies actually contacted us is Google. Um, and so I have been actually my research has been sponsored by Google. Uh, so um, so I, I know people there. So I start to actually to collaborate with them. And I spend the then after that, basically, I spend the whole year at Google to evaluating the ideas in Google infrastructure. Because, um, you know, I, I at that time, we only know this is the, this is the idea that works in the lab environment. We don't know whether it works in the real kind of production environments. And uh, uh, you know, we never tried with the real uh, real world production data before going to Google. Um, so, so after spending like a, almost a year at Google, we tried over like 20, 30 cloud outages in their production cloud environments. And we saw like really very encouraging results. And so we see like, you know, um, like, you know, better than we expect the accuracy. And also more important that we see is that we can achieve really good lead time. Uh, so the in the in the lab environment because we're typically simulating the bug uh, in the kind of very small test bed, right? Because we we cannot afford a large test bed. But in Google, what happens is that you know you know we have at that time we test with all their like infrastructure data. So they have uh, tons of machines, tons of data, and. A lot of production system, what we found out is that they have built-in redundancy. It's very complex, very redundant, highly redundant system. So you don't see okay, one server went down and the whole service went down. You never see that. What you see is that the problem starts with a few machines and then basically gradually propagates in their big infrastructure and eventually bring down the whole service. So this is basically where we can actually achieve very good lead time. So one of the outage we can achieve is even like more than 24 hours lead time for them. Uh, they have sufficient time to actually to react to it and to avoid a big service outage that bring down their production service for seven days. So, so this is very encouraging. And uh, so Google actually licensed the technology. And then um, so then I got encouraged from NSF, my NSF manager. So the National Science Foundation, right? So essentially, I, uh, you know, as a faculty, we always get sponsor majority of our uh, support coming from National Science Foundation. 
And so luckily, National Science Foundation uh, has actually a very good program uh, called SBRR grant. So that allows basically, you know, any researchers um, to commercialize their, um, their, their idea, their, their, you know, research uh, prototype. So, uh, so I actually got encouragement from the program manager and I got grants from them. So we, we get our phase one grant, uh, which is, you know, $150,000, not much. And then I, I realized, okay, maybe I can try to commercialize this. So I start a company back in 2016 after, you know, uh, access, uh, a kind of like a, uh, exciting journey at Google. So that's how Insafina got started. So I teased a little bit about the recent uh, paper that received the Symposium on, Com on Cloud Computing 10-Year Award. Tell us a little bit about the research behind that. Yeah, that, that's actually another collaboration we did with Google together. Uh, so the research started, I think it's 2000, around 2009. Uh, so that's basically, you know, a year after I just got my academia career started. And back then, Google has a really nice program called the Google Faculty Award, like, and also Google uh, Faculty Summit. Uh, so I met my collaborator, John Wickers, in that summit. And I was telling him my idea at that time is that, okay, you know, cloud just gets started. Back then, uh, I don't think people have concerns about their cloud bill because they think, okay, I'm just rent one machine. Cloud is so cheap, right? 10 cents per hour. Okay, that's cheap. So, um, so they, they didn't realize, like, you know, we, we did some math, so we think, wait a second, if you actually run a thousand machines and then for a year, you actually pay, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on that. And the other thing we, uh, for example, today, when we talk to our, some, some of our customers, they pay like tens of millions of dollars to cloud service providers each year. Uh, so the cost is is something like you know a lot of people didn't realize back then, but then we um, we, we we did a projection on this and we realized okay there there will be some concern on that. And uh, the other thing is that for me I always like you know so focus on optimization right. So I work with some users and it bothers me is that their utilization is only like seven or ten percent. So they are paying like you know. 100% usage to cloud service provider, they only use 7%. And the other thing is that, you know, uh, in the traditional data center environment, right, before cloud is um, started, in the private data center, and the, we always hear like people talk about, oh, I don't have enough resources and I need the resources. And so uh, back then, there's a very common technique, right? So um, I believe everybody experiences it. It's called the overbooking. Right, airline doing that all the time, right? So you sometimes you go to airline and say, oh, we, we ran out seats. That's why the overbooking. And that's a one way for the airline to make money, right? So they expect some people are not using their resources. Uh, so in the in private data center, they use this technique called overbooking as well. So it's actually quite effective to actually, you know, cut down the uh, resource cost. Um, but back then in cloud, there's no such technique. Um, and the other thing is that since we started with uh, prediction, and so um, we think, okay, you know, when you actually do this kind of uh, uh, resource uh, optimization, you, you, you can use prediction to guide your resource scaling, right? So particular back then, uh, 
virtual machine migration just actually got it kind of like popular. Um, so, so one of the things we observe, for example, when you migrate, you try to migrate a virtual machine. And if you actually do that, trigger the migration before the host CPU reach very high level, let's say before 90%, before CPU reach 90%, you can finish a virtual machine migration in 10 seconds. However, if you actually trigger the migration after the host is already overloaded, let's say, you know, 95% CPU utilization, it took several hours to finish migration. So that's that's the power of prediction, right? I can give you maybe like just, you know, 10 seconds, 20 seconds lead time and allow you to trigger the migration before the CPU hit 90%. And you can get this done like seamlessly. But if you don't have prediction, you wait until the CPU reach 95%, you will never get this done because it takes hours to finish migration. So this is our motivation back then. And so we, 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 we realized the power of prediction and then um, and we realized that you have the technology to implement that. Um, so, so we developed that, right? So, so uh, back then, of course, none of the kind of commer like commercial world, like, you know, cloud service provider has this kind of technique. There's an auto-scaling service, but this scaling service is actually not automatic. It's, it's manual, right? People has to, user has to set the threshold and to trigger the migration. And a lot of times they don't know uh, when they should set, what kind of threshold they should set. More importantly, it's still reactive. So this is basically, uh, we started that. And then uh, I think this year, basically that's 10 years that marked the 10 years um, uh, for this research paper. And uh, the committee basically look at it is at the citations to the paper and the kind of the impact to the real world. Um, so essentially, uh, we look at the, the auto scaling service, actually the, the timeline in the commercial world. Um, so in 2019, uh, that's basically just last year, AWS released their first predictive auto scaling service. Uh, so it took, you know, nine years right for for the idea to transition into real world so so we were we were very honored for getting this award but you know it's definitely super rewarding for me personally to see some idea can generate generate real world impact so talking about that journey to commercializing the technology that came out of a, a research environment uh, so fast forward so now you've commercialized some of the core technologies and now you've introduced it to hundreds of customers around the world. Question is, what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen customers make when they're trying to adopt, whether it's anomaly detection or incident prediction? Yeah, definitely. I think this is, has been a really hot area and, and you know, a lot of like, uh, you know, industry leaders looking into this area. Many times they, uh, for big enterprise companies, they, they hire data scientists to work together with their engineers to implement a certain kind of uh, uh, intelligent system management techniques, right? So the, the common uh, problems that I saw is that basically is the understanding about assumptions, right? I think, you know, I, I'm, you know in the research world, assumptions are always very important because if you don't understand assumptions, you will have wrong application. 
So uh, many machine learning algorithms has assumptions about the data. And that's where I saw the pitfalls is that when engineers using those algorithms, they don't understand assumptions. Uh, for example, for the very simple technique, PCA, uh, principal component analysis. This is a very common technique used for dimensionality reduction because we deal, we talk about, you know, for infrastructure data, machine data, you often deal with high dimensional data. So a lot of data scientists, they will recommend to you is saying, oh, you know, you can use PCA to reduce dimensions, then you can improve the accuracy of anomaly detection. Uh, that's actually one of the common techniques we saw, uh, also one of the techniques we tried at Google as well. Um, the problem with PCA is that it has assumptions, right? The, the assumptions of PCA is very uh, is actually pretty simple. The assumption is that the, the data among different dimensions has to be linearly correlated. So which means you can derive one dimension from the other dimension using a linear equation. Only when that linear correlation exists, you can PCA will be effective. Otherwise, PCA is not effective. So obviously, if you know these assumptions, you look at that machine data, right? So data scientist doesn't know, okay, these assumptions, my assumptions holds in machine data or not. But science, but engineers, they know, right? They know the system. So if if they look at their systems, so wait a second, I don't see this linear correlation among my system metrics most of the time. Right, so we all know system resources and the performance are nonlinear correlated. Um, this is actually a well-known, um, well-known uh, kind of like a, a, a symptom. So that that's a fundamental problem, right? So then you know, data scientists knows the assumptions of the algorithms, and engineers knows assumptions of the data, and they don't. Sometimes they don't talk to each other, right? Mm -hmm unless they actually knows, okay, this is something critical for me and you need to validate for me before I use it. But a lot of times people make why it's called assumptions, people think, take it granted, right? And the other thing, a very common mistake I saw is the, is the clustering technique, right? So um, clustering is probably the most uh, easy to use um, unsupervised machine learning techniques you can use for anomaly detection. So, one of the, the, the biggest assumption for clustering is that you need to be able to distinguish two data samples based on Euclidean distance. That's the fundamental theory behind it, right? So if you, you have like two data samples, right? It could be a vectors. And if you can say, okay, this data sample is different from this data sample, just based on Euclidean distance calculation, then you are good. But if you think about it in real world, like in machine data, if you, you, if you look at the high dimensions, that they didn't know, realize this Euclidean distance calculation is, you know, is based on assumptions that you don't have a lot of dimensions, right? So for clustering algorithm, pretty much if you have like more than 20 dimensions, your algorithm will no longer be accurate because Euclidean distance cannot capture the difference in this high dimensional data space. So this is also like, you know, again, assumptions, right? So, um, and, and the other thing is that for data scientists, they don't understand basically some uh, kind of like intrinsic um, dependencies between different machines and between different metrics. For example, 
um, a lot of times a common problem. So we just talked to one customer yesterday and the, 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 the data scientist actually raised a question to me. He said, okay, you know, one of the common things we found is that when the uh, incident happens and we see a lot of system anomalies, ex uh, system metrics exhibit, system, uh, exhibit anomalies. So how do I know which one is the principal ones? How do I know this is the, um, you know, which the root cause, right? Because if you present all those anomalies to users and to operators, it they will think like, you know, it's still useless because, you know, they don't know where to start from. And so if you understand the systems, then you will understand the intrinsic meanings of these metrics. For example, like, you know, um, if I tell you, okay, there's actually a one CPU metric, one load average metric. And if you, you know, so typically, uh, you know, when you see anomalies in system metrics, in CPU metric, you will see anomalies in low average. And, you know, from data scientist's point of view, these two metrics are just two independent metrics. But from system researcher perspective, these two metrics are actually correlated because the load average is directly reflected if you understand the meaning behind it it's directly reflected you know by the cpu usage so so this is basically some you know intrinsic uh dependency information in the system and also in distributed systems right so we know okay which machine is to, you know depend on what machine those are basically kind of you can easily derive from the uh from the domain knowledge of the application right um and those information typically are not actually taken into account by the data scientists. So, so, so if you just apply those technology directly to the um, kind of machine problems, then you will bump into all kinds of problems, right? Low accuracy. Um, and the other thing I saw common pitfall is that uh, a lot of people heard about deep learning, right? So yeah, deep learning is very powerful and you know if you have sufficient resources if you um but one of the fundamental problem the, the the assumptions for deep learning is that you need to have labeled training data and you have you need to have lots of training data so if you don't have sufficient training data and uh, you won't be able to derive a good model so once you have sufficient training data yes deep learning will be very powerful so then the question is that in the real world kind of like dynamic production environments, right? Particularly uh, recent, our recent research is about like how to do anomaly detection for containers because containers are short-lived, right? So you start a container, you do maybe like a, a few minutes of operation and you remove the container, right? Because it's so easy to start a container again. So, so because those are short-lived transient behavior, it's really hard for actually any complex model like deep learning to capture those uh, uh, those models. So those are the unique challenges for distributed systems to present to the um, machine learning world, right? And um, and the other uh, good example is basically, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, another common prediction technique used by many uh, companies called LSTM. So this 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 is also kind of neural network technology but then uh, for that kind of system and you know it has to actually you have to have a kind of relatively stable trend so 
So a well-known example is basically Facebook profit. So Facebook actually open source their um, prediction algorithms called profit. Um, so I welcome everybody to try it. Um, the behind it is basically some LSTM technology. So you know, if you read that technology carefully, they said, okay, it works particularly well with kind of like metrics with seasonal metric, uh, seasonal patterns. That's because, you know, if you have very highly fluctuating, highly dynamic uh, uh, time series data, uh, LSTM won't work. Okay, uh, so, so that's basically, you know, there's for each machine learning models, they have their assumptions. And you, when you apply to them, you have to look at your data and ask yourself, is are my data follow those assumptions, right? Otherwise, the machine learning algorithm won't work. And the other thing also I want to mention is that a lot of people just gave up when they try once and they it failed. Um, then they believe like a machine learning doesn't work, right? So essentially, uh, you can imagine no one shoes fits all. Right. And so uh, because we deal with such complex data space in um, kind of machine uh, machine data world, you don't expect you have one technology works for all the data. Um, and so you, you got to actually have a kind of a, a ensemble techniques. Right. So to actually figure out what kind of data you are dealing with and use the right technique for the data. And these kind of things also has to be automated. You cannot rely on human uh, to do that, right? So that's one one of the common problem we saw our customer to to deal with is that they have to actually rebuild model every time when when they see a new data, and not mentioning calibrating the data model. Yeah. So for everyone listening, that's Facebook's profit with a PH. Although we're all interested in Facebook's earnings, it's uh, it's the PH and not the F. Helen, we're, this has been great. We're about out of time, but uh, I can't let you go without asking you one more important question. And that is, uh, let's say, you know, roll back the clock 10 years ago, you had this insight about the need for elastic resource scaling. And obviously 10 years later, it's as relevant as ever. Now polish your crystal ball and tell us what uh, what are the big ideas that you think will lead to technological breakthroughs, call it for the next five to 10 years? Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like machine learning is actually a kind of ideal technology for machine data analysis, right? So I couldn't imagine any other area for AI technology to, to take off, right? So we, we see like automatic driving, we see like image recognition, face recognition. Those are all kind of like a, and the gaming, right? So those are all kind of like a, a AI hot AI applications. Um, however, I believe like um, you know, ID operations, application DevOps is the perfect world for machine learning because we have so much data, and um, and there's tons of insights, and our operators need need help. And I, you know, my husband is a software engineer, and he, sometimes he had to get up in the middle of night to fix production bugs. I want to help him first, <laughs> so I want to avoid, like, let people like you know get the sleep back, uh, get time back to work on their the problems that matters to them and they are most interested in. So um, and there's still a lot of open problems and particularly uh, my personal research interests recently is really zooming on this causal analysis 
Um, and I think, you know, in the machine learning world, I mean, anomaly detection is hard, um, but I think the causal analysis is really the fundamental, um, kind of the, 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 the hardest part of the, the, the whole uh, space. And we, we had some research, uh, recent research papers published in this area uh, that can actually do automatic bug fixing. Um, so by identifying specific root causes and come up with the fix automatically. Uh, so for example, one of the most recent paper we published called the hand fix, uh, we can actually fix those hand bugs in seconds. Um, so this is actually, I think a very exciting area um, so there's a lot of like, you know, um, uh, I would say low hanging fruits for people to tackle because, you know, we just have too many problems and, uh, you know, those problems are now going away. We, you know, fundamentally human rights code and human made mistakes and those mistakes won't go away, you know, quickly. And also as we rely on this IT infrastructure more and more, and when very quickly those outages will soon mean life-threatening um so so every minute every second we can save for the the you know for the user from the uh service outage i think it will be extremely valuable helen as that future becomes a reality can i ask you to come back and talk more about the state <laughs> of the art sure certainly we'll be happy we're out of time for today this has been fantastic. Hopefully everyone uh, in the audience has learned a lot. We will have Helen back. We were just scratching the surface, uh, but a fascinating discussion. I will leave you with a quote that I think is uh, as relevant today as it was two years ago, and it will probably even be more relevant two years from now. What can be predicted is better left to machines, but what requires intuition or empathy is better left to humans. If you're interested in learning more about Insight Finder, please go to insightfinder.com slash request a trial. Thank you once again. <laughs>